have you go ahead and stand if you're able for the reading of the scripture this evening. We carry on in the study that we're doing on 1 Kings and particularly focusing on the life of the prophet Elijah. We started a couple of weeks ago and then Pastor Brian preached for this this, this past week and then now we are in verse 17. We're going to look through 17 through 24 and I'm going to ask if you would to follow along with me as I read for us out of God's word. It says this. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in these next few moments would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can go ahead and be seated. This passage hit me hard this week. I don't know exactly why, if it's circumstantial, if it was just the mood that I was in when I began to study it, but there was something about it that just just hit me in this visceral way. Especially verse 18, this is when the woman first uh, basically confronts Elijah after her son has died. And she says, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. It just felt like such a human wrestling with the providence of God that can be so mysterious and that we don't understand and that we don't get, or or to reference the, the, the sermon title that I chose for this week, it seems like she is wrestling with the reality of a God who both gives, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, but in the next breath takes away. Why? Now, if we read this text in isolation, if, if we started here, if we hadn't looked at the previous uh, verses this past week, it, you know, the, the text would still be heartbreaking. It would still be a story about a woman, a, a widow who lost her beloved son, but it might not have hit quite as hard as it does when we take it together in the context of what's come around it. 
Because the verses that immediately preceded this introduced us to this widow and her son for the first time. And there are also verses that put it all in context that make us realize that this heartbreak that she's experiencing in the verses we read tonight, well, it goes pretty deep. So last week, Pastor Brian preached on the previous verses, the ones where we first get introduced to the widow and her son. In case you weren't here for that, uh, I'm going to fill you guys in, so don't worry. Here's what happened. Elijah the prophet is sent by the Lord to go to this sort of foreign territory, the land of Tyre and Sidon. And when he arrives, he encounters right away this woman, the widow of Zarephath. And she's gathering sticks at the time because she's going to make one final meal for she and her son. She's gathering sticks to create the fire with which she will cook the final little bit of flour that she has with the final little bit of oil that's left in the jar. Remember, there's famine and drought in the land, so there's hardly anything to eat. And so this woman is collecting firewood to prepare the last meal. She's come to terms with the death of she and her son. So Elijah meets her, and he encounters her. He learns all this, and he says, he says I, I challenge you to step out on faith here. I challenge you to, to take that small bit of flour and oil that looks like it's not even enough for one person, let alone three, and yet I want you to feed not only me but yourself and your son with it. Trust that the Lord, my God, the God of Israel, can do that. And she does. And sure enough, as she steps out on faith and she feeds Elijah as well as herself and her son, the Lord makes it so that that little bit of oil never runs out. That little pinch of flour never gives way. Notice, and you know, Brian mentioned this last week, that it's, it's interesting that God's provision didn't come in the form of giant sacks of grain and flour and oil being like, here, but rather his provision comes in the form of her by faith trusting him each and every day that that little bit of oil wasn't going to go. Huh. Well, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. Let me bring us back to the main point. The woman and her son learned that Elijah's God, the God of Israel, our God, is the true provider. He's the one who sustains life. He's the one that can, that can feed his people no matter what they're going through. He sustained them. But then, in the very next verse, the one that we started with today, verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So, you're telling me that this young man was spared from starvation only so that a few weeks later, maybe a few months later, he would get sick and die. What? Why, God? What was the point of that? Was this just a setup to make the grief and the pain even deeper than it would have been otherwise? That, that's what I hear this woman saying when she comes and confronts Elijah. She's mad. She's hurt. She's desperate. She says, what have you against me? Was this all just some ruse to, to condemn me even more because of my sin? That's why I'm telling you that the context of this story 
makes the pain that I hear in this woman's voice so much deeper. It wasn't that her son, or excuse me, it wasn't just that her son had died. It was that it came on the hills of God so miraculously saving them just weeks before. What is he up to? This um, issue, so to speak, this sequence of events that almost kind of feels like whiplash of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away and us saying, like, what is going on? It's something that critical scholars of the Bible sometimes have latched onto as saying, aha, here's a contradiction in the text. Surely the writer of 1 Kings would not have purposely put these two stories back to back. It doesn't make any sense. This must be some error in transmission or maybe two different stories of two different widows that have been combined into one in this accidental way. There's all these solutions to the problem of this text, as if there is a problem. But the tragedy of assuming that there's a problem in this text is that it means that those critical scholars miss the most important thing about it, and that is it's true to life, isn't it? I've felt this. I know for a fact that many of you have too. I've walked with you in times where you've asked me the question, why, God? What, why would God do this miraculous thing only to lead to this heartache? I've been on those text threads where we're together celebrating the fact that uh, maybe a, a child who's walked away from the faith is, is coming back and asking questions about the gospel. And we celebrate only for a few months later to seem, for it to seem like they're further away than when they even started. Where I've celebrated with some of you that have gotten negative test results uh, when you went to the doctor's appointment and we say, praise the Lord, he answered our prayers. And then six months later, we're back at the doctor with hard news. Why? Why would God allow such a thing? Why would he give so beautifully and miraculously? only to take away so abruptly. This Bible that we read and we study, it is an incredibly down-to-earth book. I hope you realize that. It doesn't describe ideal situations where everything works out beautifully and pretty. It describes life as you and I know it. And that's the mistake that sometimes the critical scholars make is they say, like, this couldn't possibly be what the writer of 1 Kings was trying to describe. I think it's exactly what he's trying to describe. A feeling that he knew well, that we know well, and a feeling that really happened with this widow having such beautiful bounty given and then taking away and saying, what is going on? That's the place that I want us to sit in for just a little bit today and see what God wants us to take away from this very jarring sequence of events. Now, I told the folks up in paradise this morning that I had like this sermon design that had like six points and there was like three sub points on each of the ones and they were alliterated. It was beautiful. So well laid. But then I realized yesterday when I was sort of sitting with my notes, I was like, man, I just want to talk about one thing here. One big takeaway. 
And it has to do with what we see Elijah doing in this text. So we've talked so far kind of about the, the lead up, the context of what happened when this woman's son dies. But now I want us to look and focus in on what we see the prophet Elijah doing in response to this act. He does some weird stuff. Really strange. Like, you know, he prays, and we'll talk about that prayer in just a moment, but then he also, like, he carries the boy up to the top floor of the house, and then did you notice this? He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord. What? That's weird. And I'll be straight with you. I have no idea what that means. I tried. I, I, guys, I did a lot of research on what's going on with this stretching out three times, and there are so many different interpretations and answers, which usually means that we, we don't have a clear picture of what it is. I mean, I, I saw some people saying it must be a cultural practice that we're not aware of and is kind of being un forgotten in time. <laughs> there was even one suggestion that this was, because he does it three times, that this is like a, uh, it's a reference to the Trinity, you know, the three persons of the Trinity, which I think is kind of a stretch, um, but it was out there. But all that to say, uh, really, the details that grab our attention when we read about what Elijah does is this weird, uh, strange action. But I actually think the most significant thing that we see Elijah doing, well, I'll take it back. The most significant thing is what we see, Eli what we don't see Elijah doing, what he's not doing in this text, so to speak. And here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't try to explain why God has done this. He doesn't try to give her an answer. He doesn't try to give her a simple explanation about the providence of God. He could have. I mean, she, she confronts him. Let me read again what she said. She says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. He could have defended himself there. He could have tried to give her a lecture on the sovereignty of God and how God's wisdom sometimes is beyond our wisdom. He, he could have given a simple answer and then changed the subject, but no, he doesn't do any of that. In fact, what it seems like he does is step into the shoes of this mother who is grieving and heartbroken and confused and to join her there. Look at his prayer. If we go down a little further in the text, it says this. It says, Elijah cried out to the Lord and he says, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Elijah's saying, what in the world is going on, Lord? Really? And now we're beginning to see that perhaps the reason why he didn't give her a quick answer as to why this had happened is because he doesn't know. He's as bewildered as she is when he thinks about just this, the whiplash of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away. And the first cry that he just viscerally cries out to God in his prayer is saying, God, what is going on here? Now, the pushback to this, if there is pushback, I think there is, 
is that some people might read this or hear us talking about it here and be like, Elijah is the man of God. He's the prophet of the Lord. Shouldn't he have answers? Of all the people that could give her an answer, an accurate, a clear, a a truthful answer about the ways of God, isn't it the prophet, the same guy that the Lord has, has worked these amazing miracles through, the one whose prayers the Lord hears in such a way that he shuts up the heavens for years at a time, isn't this the guy that should be able to say, you know what, here's why God did that? Well, not necessarily the case. And I say that from personal experience. I say that from times where I've seen either in myself or in other pastors I've worked with, when people have looked to us for answers and for easy solutions to life's difficult, painful problems, and we've had to humbly say, I don't know. This was 13 years ago. I did the math this morning when I was preaching in paradise a long time ago. I had been a pastor for precisely one year, and now it's Christmas time, 2018. Sorry, I won't dip my head that far again. And um, I was invited to a Christmas party with a group of friends, mostly a group that was part of the congregation up in paradise. Um, Most of that group now has moved away or is in another spot. Um, But we had a Christmas party that year, and as we were gathered around the living room at a friend's house, um, just laughing, talking, eating snacks, one of our friends who was there, her name was Carissa, fell over off the couch onto the floor, which was very strange, but then we realized that something was really wrong. And after the ambulance came, after CPR and chest compressions were done, after a few hours waiting in the ER over at Inlo, we were told that she died. And in fact, she had died right there on the spot where she fell over on the couch. Uh, she had a unknown kind of mysterious genetic heart condition that nobody had known about. And her heart had stopped right there and right then. And, you know, I had been a pastor for a year, and I remember just sitting with this group of friends and just just head spinning of what in the world just happened. And then I came to learn, and many others in paradise knew this way more than I did, but Carissa's family, the Cox family, had been through so much already. Her father had passed away when she was just a little girl and her brothers and sisters were little. And then her older brother, when he was in high school, had a brain tumor that people prayed for. And there was fundraisers and everybody came around in the community. He passed away too. And now Carissa, just unexpectedly out of nowhere, had her heart stop. I remember meeting her mom and just having nothing to say. I was so just confused and bewildered and heartbroken that one family would be burdened with so much. And so the funeral happened a few days after 
Lisa passed away, and I remember we were all sitting there, myself included, just feeling absolutely upside down. And our pastor at the time, Pastor Tom, um, the pastor I started working with many years ago, some of you guys know, I remember he got up into the pulpit, and his first remarks were something along the lines of this. What is God doing? Why did this happen? And it wasn't just some rhetorical statement. He was pouring his heart out in that moment of of the same question we all had. Now, if somebody was visiting that day or an outsider, they might have thought that that was really inappropriate for a pastor to say. Or they might have thought, like, what do you mean? You're the pastor. You're the one that's supposed to have the answers. You don't get up in the pulpit and give more questions. But I tell you what, having the pastor vocalize and articulate the grief and the confusion and the pain that we were feeling that day was so much what was needed. To have him say it out loud, yes, what is going on? He was the leader, the preacher, the man of God, the prophet, but just like Elijah that we're reading in this text. He was willing to step into that place with us and say, I don't understand this. I I don't think that we as a people generally are comfortable with going down that road. We're not comfortable with admitting that we don't have the solution or the answer or the why. I mean, I'll admit it myself as a pastor. There are times when I don't have those things to give someone, and yet I feel this inner compulsion to try to solve it for them. And I bet you do too as a Christian sometimes. Your witness to your friends, your family, the people that you work with is that you believe that God has revealed himself in the scripture, that he is the way, the truth, the life. And so when they ask you those hard questions about what's happening in life, you better have an answer for them. I bet you've felt kind of that internally, but Would it be okay and right to actually follow the path that Elijah did here and not give the simple answer, but instead step into that grief and confusion and and express it with this woman too? What I guess I'm really asking is, are you familiar with the language of lament? Which is what we did earlier in our prayer, right? can't remember if I defined it or not, but lament, in my definition, is crying out to the Lord, expressing those deep emotions of the heart that sometimes overtake us when we see the most painful and hard things, and we cry out to the Lord, and just like the psalmist does in Psalm 10 and 13, say, how long, O Lord? I can't remember if I mentioned this either, but I, I don't... Maybe, I don't know if it's a worldwide thing or just an American thing, but we're really bad at lament. And I don't mean bad as if there's a right way to do it and we're not going to, we just don't do it at all. I mean, uh, honestly, it took some friends here at church to kind of challenge me as the pastor to say, like, this should probably be part of our prayer life more corporately than it currently is. Yeah, you're right. And maybe the reason why is because we are very uncomfortable 
with not having the solutions and the quick fixes. We change the subject. We suppress yucky things. We don't want to sit in and think about the hard stuff. <laughs> Years ago, I remember when we first started Vespers, we did a prayer of confession and assurance of grace, and I had somebody come up to me and be like, man, that was such a bummer. It's like, yeah, confessing sin is a bummer. But it takes you to the glory and the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ. We can't get there without going here. And yet it was this sentiment of just like church is for happy, nice, encouraging things. Not how long, oh Lord, will you forget your people? And yet here in the scripture, in the story of Elijah and the story of the Psalms, you have men and women of faith from long before us that seemed incredibly at home with the language of lament. Perhaps we need to learn that better. And why? Just to say that we can follow suit with them? No, because that is where a healthy heart comes from. When we're actually able to, to lament and cry out to God about the things that are so painful and confusing and distressing, or if we're able to do it in solidarity with others, we're actually meeting it head on and just not suppressing or explaining away. It's healthy and good. It's what I see Elijah doing here. Of all the things that he did in this passage, and there's lots of them, the weird and the not so weird, it's what he doesn't do. Give the widow a simple explanation or a quick reason why. That's the thing that stands out to me the most. Now, the text obviously continues, and probably many of you have been angry with me because you're like, Josh, you're just focusing on the bad part, but the end of the story is where it's at. Yes, after Elijah cries out to the Lord and pours out his heart, then he makes a specific request. He says, oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. That's the end of verse 21. And what happens? God hears his prayer. The child is brought back to life, and this widow who was so bewildered and in despair and maybe even anger before is now saying, I see that you are the prophet of the Lord and what you say is true. The end. Awesome. What, what do we do with that sort of twist, uh, or not really twist, but that conclusion to the end of this passage? How do we add this in to what we've been talking about already? Well, one approach could be, and this isn't a very good one, but I'll throw it out there. One approach could be that we say like, aha, lament is the secret to getting God to answer your prayers. That's the magic formula. When you pour out your heart, when you say, how long, O oh Lord, when you copy sort of the, uh, the patterns of Psalm 10 and Psalm 13, the Lord appreciates that, and the things that you ask for that you're upset about, they, the, God addresses it. The sun comes back to life. That is not the takeaway that I want us to have today. And the reason why is because even as wonderful as this lady's story is, there were probably thousands of widows who lost children in the days of this family who grieved and gave their lament to God and they didn't come back to life. 
fact, we could say in all of history, actually. Jesus says that in the days of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel, and yet he was sent only to this particular one. And by extension, we can think that all those other widows that were in Israel might have gone through these same experiences, and they didn't see the Lord show up in this particular miraculous way. So my takeaway is not that, oh, wow, the language of lament equals this magic make prayer happen. No. Well, my takeaway is that when God raises this widow's son, he is giving us a foretaste of what he would do in history that makes it so that when you and I cry out to him in the language of lament, we do so with confidence and trust that he is faithful and good. Do you know what I'm talking about? About this foretaste, about this hint? Tell me if this sounds familiar at all, okay? This woman has a son. We're not positive if it's her only son, but it sure seems that way. It's her beloved son. And like I said, very possibly her only son that she is excited about his life and then all of a sudden in an instant it's taken away and he is dead for multiple days and then is miraculously brought back to life through resurrection. Does that remind you of any other son? Thank God. One person said yes. I told you before that it would be a stretch to see that the, the three of the stretching out here is some uh, pointing to the Trinity. And that is true. That probably is a little bit of a stretch. But what is not a stretch is to see the death and then resurrection of the son in this story as hinting, pointing at, whispering at, foreshadowing the death and resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ. Even though Elijah and the widow and the son wouldn't know the fullness of the story in their lifetime, we get to look at it and see. So what does that have to do with lament? How does this fit with what we're talking about with the language of the lament? Here is how. What this points to is the fact that God has definitively spoken in history through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that when you cry out to God with that heart prayer of how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me? You're not just thrashing about in the dark hopelessly. You are crying out in lament against the backdrop of the goodness of the gospel. You're crying out in lament with that safety net underneath you of the God who has given his very own son so that you might live. You are crying out in pain and distress against the backdrop of a Jesus, the eternal son of God, who shed his blood on the cross so that you might be forgiven of your sins and that God would view you as holy and blameless if you cling on to Christ in faith. When you cry out and lament, you are doing so against the backdrop of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have decisively said it's through the resurrection of the Son that death is no more, that death is not the final word, that life will reign. God has given an answer, not multiple different answers in every different situation that grieves our hearts and life, but he's given the final, conclusive, definitive answer that in Christ, 
is the way and the truth and the life. And when I struggle with why he's allowed things to happen, when I struggle with this pain or this hurt or this tragedy, I do it against the backdrop of a God who has spoken in the gospel. That's why you can enter into this place of lament with confidence, with trust, that the God you're speaking to is faithful. Sometimes we, we hate lament because it feels blasphemous to us. You read through Psalm 10, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Are you allowed to say that? Are you allowed to accuse God of forgetting you? In the Psalms they do. But I believe that they're able to say that in confidence and trust because they have relationship with God, and you do too through Christ. Because of the thing pointed to in this text, when the Son is risen again, you are in such close, deep relationship with Him that when you struggle in your lament, you know you're doing it with a Heavenly Father who loves you. And even if you don't see the answers, you know He's faithful. This doesn't take away our questions. We still have questions. I have questions about why God did it this way in 1 Kings 17. I have deep questions about why the Cox family has had to endure such suffering. I have questions even in my own family. Some of you guys know this, but my dad seemingly miraculously was spared from pancreatic cancer. Only for a year later us to find out that he had early onset Alzheimer's. And life would forever be changed. Why? Why, God? still have the questions, but when I ask them in that form of lament, I'm able to do so with the confidence that God has given the final answer, and that answer's name is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and the one who has purchased eternal life for those who believe in him. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the mercy that you showed in this text where you meet this woman in her pain and you miraculously bring her son back to life. God, that's an incredible mercy that you gave her. Maybe in heaven one day we'll rejoice with her about that wonderful thing she experienced. And yet I imagine that she would point us to the even greater thing that that signaled. The death of the Son of God three days in the tomb and the fact that he would rise again in triumph God thank you that through him you've taken away the sting of death you've taken away the hopelessness and that you've given us a promise of great hope for those who trust in him God let that be the thing that gives us confidence in our prayers even in prayers where we cry out and struggle let us trust your faithfulness because of what you've done in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.